This is singlehood two, courtship and engagement. Lesson number four, getting engaged. One of my disclaimers for this lesson and probably any of these lessons on singlehood is many times or in many ways these lessons will will cross plow the American culture and the American tradition. And we cannot be offended by that. Even in teaching this and the previous uh, set of curriculum a couple years ago in singlehood one, we had people say, I wish I had known this 20 years ago. I wish I'd heard this 30 years ago. And even in writing some of these lessons, I think I could have done things better 10 years ago, 12 years ago when my wife and I were dating and courting and then, and then getting engaged. And so if I, if, if I preach against how you did something, don't take it personal. It's, it's not personal. But I also have a burden of responsibility as a pastor and a minister to make sure the next generation does things better than us. Revelation is progressive, or we should say God reveals himself to each generation in a stronger and a better way because they're closer to the end of time and they can see things more clearly. So if if I cross-plow your life, don't beat yourself up. If you say, well, pastor, we didn't meet in the house of God. We met in a bar. Well, you're married. You honor God. That's not the best way. We're not condemning you. you. You found the will of God somehow, and that's wonderful. But we still have to teach the best. If I can see the best, I can't pull the punch just because you didn't do the best. All right? So this is not any condemnation for you if you're married. This is for the singlehood and the single folks who want to know how to do it the best. If I could redo it, I'd redo some of these things myself, but I'm not beating myself up. I went, huh, I operated in as much light as I knew how. So that's what we're going to do. Because what I'm going to teach this morning is going to really attack some of our American traditions and culture. Don't get offended. All right? Don't get offended. Once again, the purpose behind this entire teaching is to develop and present a safe and honorable pattern for modern Christians to follow as they cautiously journey down the tricky road of love and marriage. This is a pattern. This isn't a hard set rule, but a pattern, and we need to catch the heart behind God. One of the reasons I can see these lessons, both singlehood one and now singlehood two, raising the standard is that there is an all-out assault against marriage. And we don't have to think it's, or I should say, please don't think it's just the gay marriage agenda or the polygamy, polyamory uh, marriage agenda or the marry your dog or marry your robot agenda. It's to mock marriage in general. It's to make marriage cheap, ugly, nasty, uh, a dime a dozen. The fact that we have people being married four and five and six and eight times and really two times is more than enough. And we understand sometimes you get divorced, sometimes someone dies. And if you're a divorcee, I hope it was they who sued you for divorce and not you abandoning them. Either way, there's forgiveness, but we have a problem. And marriage is the first institution God ever developed. That's why Satan has hated it for 6,000 years. Satan is like a spoiled brat. If God loves it, he hates it for no other reason but that God loves it. And if God instituted it to be a certain way, the devil says, well, I'm just going to mock it, ridicule it, and deface it. Just, just to spite God. So that's why we have to lean against this stuff and find out what the scriptures have to say. The ingredient of honor. Now we're talking about getting engaged. We want to present this. We have to add honor in everything we do. Uh, It must be mentioned that at any point along the path to marriage, up until you say, I do, you can still walk away. You can still part ways. If you determine the relationship to be outside the perfect will of God, and I know lots of people, even in this church, that were at one point engaged, got disengaged, and then moved on and found the perfect will of God, and they've been happy ever since, and so thankful they didn't marry the person they thought they would. 
Even people in this service right now were engaged to somebody, which means, you know, you're basically staring down the barrel of I do. And then all of a sudden, this isn't God. And they, they stopped and they pulled, the, they, they, they pulled the plug, which you ought to be able to do. Pastor Vaughn would famously say five minutes before he walked down the aisle, he was still wearing his blue jeans, praying and saying, Lord, if it's not your will, I'll walk away from this woman. Now, I would hope by that point you got the thing settled pretty good in your heart, but I understand the heart behind it. You just are always waiting to make sure you're in the will of God. The Bible does not specifically give the name of our future spouse. And so uh, we must patiently walk out this part of our life with as much fear, trembling, and prayer as possible. Now again, I am a tremendous stickler for taking patience and taking your time, just both through my own personal hardships and and foolish decision-making, but also because it's so biblical. And if we believe that marriage is the second biggest decision of your life, and it is, the first being what you do with Jesus Christ, then I I really don't get these like one-week engagements. I don't, I don't get these three-month engagements. I don't get this meeting and marrying in the same week thing. That's messed up because there's no maturity there. There's no patience there. There's no walking out a biblical pattern there. We, even when it's a heterosexual couple, you can see the devil mocking God because you got two drunk buffoons in Vegas meet each other over the craps table and get Elvis to marry them before they have sex that night. And that has become a common marriage experience. Amen. We have to walk this thing out patiently with fear and trembling because this is a pattern of Christ in the church. This is a pattern of how God sacrifices for us. Ephesians 5 tells us this is a critical thing. This relationship, there's no closer relationship than husband and wife. You don't do it just because you get messed up and have sex prematurely. That's no cause for marriage. You repent and go on. And I don't even have time to give my judgment. If you have a baby out of wedlock, how do you clean that mess up? This thing, is, this thing has got to be taken very seriously with as much counsel and support surrounding you as possible. When you withdraw to court and date, you are in a heap of trouble. And we just got to raise this standard for the next generation. I don't believe in eloping either. I don't think that's of God. That's what rebellious people do when they can't get their family's blessings or anybody's blessings. And it's what you do to save money. And if you're going to save money getting married and you don't want to take the cost that it should take to get married, then what are you going to do? you going to cheapskate the rest of your marriage? And I'm not saying you spend 60 grand on your wedding, but I'm talking about you're just trying to cut corners. And I won't even start about getting married at the justice of the peace. What a dishonorable, disrespectful, distasteful thing to do. Because who is the JOP but just a public official who was hired by a bunch of pagans? And you're going to let them consecrate your wedding vows? Anyway, I'm pretty passionate about some of this. I'm trying to raise up the next generation to go better. Every step of your friendship, courtship, and engagement must be defined by honor. Okay, now, if you did anything I just preached against, no condemnation. (laughs) No condemnation, but we're raising the standard better. I'm not thinking about anybody and picking on this stuff, all right? Uh, To be honest with you, I've already pulled about four punches. Because I started to think about one or two of you and went, It's not worth it right now. I'll deal with that later. I'm thinking about the future generations that will listen to this on pod school. Your kids, my kids, our grandkids. We want them to do better than us. So honor in your courtship, honor for God. Man, if you don't honor God in your courtship, it's sunk. Put God first in your relationship. Don't abandon the house of God. You wouldn't believe how many folks start dating in court and abandon church. They skip church to go, I don't know, do whatever they want to do. 
Don't abandon the house of God, your spiritual responsibilities, or your walk with God now that you have a significant other. Don't do it. God's the one who brought them to you. Don't dishonor God by disappearing. Some people fall in love and they become Houdini. They just, whew, just gone. If courting causes you to wane in your spiritual zeal and Christian walk, you are not ready for the burden of an intimate relationship. If just courting causes you to back off your Christianity, what will marriage do? We may never see you in the house of God again. You may go to hell over someone you married. So put God first. Put God first. That's why we teach in Singlehood One, you should meet in the house of God. Now, some of you met online. I'm against that. I don't condemn you. I have friends, uh, lots of friends that have met online, and their marriages are doing great. That is the exception. I will never teach that as a rule. We teach you meet in the house of God. Because, you know, uh, there's all sorts of Christian date sites. This is one of the punches I was pulling earlier. I'm not going to pull it now. Let me just kind, kindly teach it. They, they promote that get online because God needs help. That's, that's their motto. I find that heavily insulting. Get online because sometimes God needs help. How about God knows where you are, knows what you need, and brings you together? Now, he might have done that through your online thing. And again, I'm not going to condemn you for it, but I will never teach that as the will of God. I can't. We're raising the standard higher. I've got a great, uh, so my best friend in Knoxville, he and his wife met online. She was a missionary to uh, Kenya, speaks Swahili. She's a white girl. Marriage is doing awesome. They serve God. Fantastic. I would never promote that to anybody. I don't want my girls meeting their husbands online. I'm going to disciple my son-in-laws. That's my standard. I've raised mine, now up yours. <laughs> Amen. Uh, Pastor Jerry Kloster quote. <laughs> no condemnation. We're just trying to raise the standard higher. I have cousins. My cousin's been married to her husband for 17 years. No, no, no. 15 years. She met him online. He's from Wells. He's Welsh. Internet, 15 years ago, she met her husband. They're doing great. They lo- I don't know. I can't say they love God because they're pseudo-pagans. They love each other, and they got awesome kids. It does happen. It's the exception, not the rule. Don't beat yourself up. God had mercy. Just like I don't want my girls meeting their husbands at college or in a bar somewhere. I want the meeting in the house of God or the mission field or a church conference because that's the Bible pattern. All right, enough of that. Don't, don't hate me if you disagree with me. Just hear what I'm saying. Honor your families. So when dating according, you don't need to just win the heart of your partner. You need to win their family. You have to do that. You have to do that. You're going to be to to separate a mother and father from their grown child. And that's not easy for parents. These parents have sacrificed and suffered to raise your significant other to be the person you've fallen in love with them. You owe them honor and respect. They have made this person who you've fallen in love with, so you owe them the greatest measure of honor uh, alone. And you need to say, I am so in love with your son. You have raised an amazing man, and I am forever indebted to her. You've raised an amazing woman, and I am in love with her, and uh, I'm going to honor you for that. You owe the parents a tremendous amount of honor and gratitude. Make sure they don't feel like you're stealing their child from them, and that certainly happens many times. Uh, Now, again, this, this... these lessons assume that the families are stable. This, this assumes that uh, things are done well. We understand that you might marry someone who's an orphan. You might fall in love with someone who was raised in a single home or raised in foster care. So there are these peripheral exceptions to this. But I'm, we're presenting a general rule here. 
So, you know, we're not trying to get legalistic. Well, what if she's been divorced? And, or what if he's been divorced? I, again, I'm, think, I'm, t- I'm trying to take this to the purest source as possible. Assuming the child came from mom and dad, the family's still together. I'm still modeling the great American atomic family that honored God. And there's all sorts of weirdness out there today that's just part of the curse. We will adapt and adjust as we approach those situations individually. Mom and dad want to be convinced that you will do an even better job than they when it comes to providing, protecting, and caring for their son and daughter. Listen, mom and dad don't think anybody can do a job as good as they can. And you have to convince them they have met a greater. You have to. Mom and dad don't think anybody in the planet, on the planet can take as good a care of their girl or boy than they can. And you have to convince them, I don't mean to disagree, but yes, I can. And I'm willing to do it for the rest of my life. Matt, that's honorable. That's romantic. That's... You're not eloping to have Elvis do the wedding. Oh, by the way, Mom, I'm married. No, you're, you're an unthankful, unholy child. Honor for brother or sister in Christ. Now, here's the third form of honor in the order of importance. Remember, until you are married, you're only a brother or sister in Christ. So if your hands go places you shouldn't, you are copping a feel on your brother or sister in Christ. Ew. Ew. You have no authority over each other or your bodies. So that doesn't mean, you, you know, you're, you're dating or courting. You can't boss each other around. There's no authority in marriage there. You're still brothers, brothers and sisters in Christ. You're subject one to another. It's mutual. Only once you marry does the husband become the head. Guys, you're not the head of her until you marry her. You are still a brother and you are subject to her. And she is subject to you. You do things as friends. Now, you would be wise, gentlemen, to submit to her when the wedding decisions, because it's all about her anyway. And most guys are smart, like, yeah, okay, cool. You like this? Yeah, okay, cool. I'm just going to be there, honey. It's all about you. That's a wise man. Very wise man. Let her have what she wants, because it's all about her. She's the one that walks in that everybody stands for. We all dress in black, so we blend in. Her bridesmaids don't dress in white. They dress in every color of the rainbow. She walks in white because it's all about her. This is where you submit to her, men, in the planning of the wedding day. All right? Then after that, honey, you're done. (laughs) Enjoy your six months of control and power because once you say I do, you're done. (laughs) Ah. It is the leading about of a sister in marriage that makes her a wife. Some of you don't have a wife. You're just married. Some of you don't have a wife. You're just married because it is the leading about in the holy things of God and in the mature, wise decision-making of Christ that makes her a wife and it actually makes you a husband. You're in holy matrimony, yeah, but unless you're leading her about, she's just a sister you're married to. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9. Have we not authority? Men, you've got to learn that you have some, not to be a jerk or a caveman. Have we not authority to lead about a sister, a wife? You leading her in Christ and in marriage is what makes her a wife to you. If you're not leading her, if you're just being a spoiled brat, bossing her around or letting her run the show, you're not not a husband. You're a guy that's married. You're a roommate with conjugal rights. Not a good place to be. Keep your hands to yourself. 1 Timothy 5 says, treat younger men as brothers. You hear that, ladies? Treat that boyfriend, that fiance as a brother uh, because you're not married yet. Older women as mothers, that is a good word. Younger women as sisters, hear that gentlemen, with absolute purity. That means you're not touching or doing things you shouldn't until the wedding day. 
You don't want to ruin it anyway. It's like opening Christmas presents a week in advance. Don't do that. It ruins Christmas. And you'll have shame. You'll always know your, your hands went where they shouldn't have and you did what you shouldn't have until before the wedding day. You don't, you don't want that. You don't want to have to be purged from that. It's better to not have it than have to be purged from it. Courtship and engagement is a time to further get to know your partner's heart and mind, not their body. There'll be plenty of time for that once you say, I do. You're, during courtship and engagement, you're getting to know each other's heart and mind. There's plenty of body exploration after the fact. Amen. When purity is the testimony of your relationship, should you ever need to call it off, there will be no shame or embarrassment. You want to make sure you walk this out honorably so that should you discover it's not the will of God or something horrific happened, you can part ways and it not be any more awkward or painful than it needs to be. A friend of mine who now pastors in Alabama, he was uh, engaged to a girl and she was a preacher's daughter, and he was, a, well, he was a tremendous young man of God, one of my mentors of sorts. And they were engaged, and I think a month before the wedding, they, re, they both looked at each other and said, actually, she, the, the fiancé, helped me get spirit-filled. She was one of my disciples. They looked at each other and said, this isn't the will of God. You know, you're right. I thought there was something not right about this. How did we make this mistake? I don't know, but we're not going to make it. And they parted ways and have married other people and are serving God 20 years later. You want to be able to walk your courtship and your engagement out so honorably should you ever have to pull the plug. There's no shame or embarrassment. There is only, it just wasn't God. And we kept our hands to ourselves and we honored mother and father. We honored God. We didn't fumble the ball in our church responsibilities. We genuinely honored God and God will honor us in this too. Sometimes though, when you stop honoring God and you stop honoring mom and dad and you don't even honor the other ones, you'll never see the will of God because you're so consumed of lust and self, you'll miss the total will of God and plow right into a marriage you should have never been into. And then God help you. Marriage is already tough enough when it is the divine will of God. You will be able to part ways as friends and brethren in Christ. You will part ways honorably. So let's move on to engagement here, because this is where I'm going to get into some stuff that I think is going to really stretch us and challenge us as, as I'm going to say white Americans, but we have some black Americans in here too, and whatever kind of American you are, you're an American. I often just pick on white Americans because I'm an expert on that. Engagement. Engagement is the term Westerners use to describe the act of betrothal or espousal. We don't use those words. We talk about engagement. The word's not the issue. We want to see the heart behind it. This is a very established biblical rite, the betrothal, the espousal, the engagement. The word betrothal means to arrange for the marriage of, or affiance, to pledge by promise of marriage, or to promise to marry. I promise to marry you. Espouse, it means to make one's own, to marry, or to give in marriage. It has a little bit wider usage, because a husband can espouse his daughter to another man, or she can espouse herself or a man can be a spouse to marry to a woman. So it's got a wider usage. Again, we don't use these words in our language, but this is their proper use. Uh, like anything else, our culture is dissolving down to much more simpler, simpler, simpler. We don't have the vocabulary we used to have. We used to have a whole vocabulary of synonyms. Now we don't even know what a synonym is. LOL. OMG. Engage means to bind as by pledge, promise, contract, or oath to betroth. So I just want to give you those definitions. Matthew 1.18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused or engaged 
to Joseph before they came together, that means had sex or consummated the marriage or had the wedding ceremony, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Now that's important. She wasn't just found with child because that would have made her a cheater. She was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Now the Jewish act of espousal was basically when you were espoused, you were technically married. And the time in between that espousal and the marriage was used to prepare the home. It was used to raise the dowry or the the bride price. It was used to mature. It was used for the families to get together better and know each other. But you were in a binding contract, and you could be divorced through engagement. And you, the the Gospels talk a lot about that when uh, the Pharisees came to Jesus about the reason for the right of divorcement. She was legally bound to him and now pregnant. And when Joseph was going to put her away silently, though he had every right to publicly humiliate her, he being a just man, the Bible says he purposed to put her away silently. The angel of God had to come and say, don't do it. This, is, this thing is of God. She is pregnant by the Spirit of God. And so he kept the vow, the oath. And he, of course, he married her after the fact, after she delivered Jesus. Um, Mary was engaged, excuse me, Joseph, you caught me. Uh, Mary was engaged to Joseph, but not yet married. They were legally bound to each other through betrothal, but not officially married, nor had they consummated the marriage. That is why her pregnancy had to be explained to Joseph by an angel, so he doesn't go and divorce her. So the Greek word for a spouse is, there you have it, mitsutsuo, to seek in marriage with the idea of a successful courtship leading to engagement. To woo her and ask her hand in marriage to give a souvenir, an engagement gift. That's what the Greek means. That's a part of the culture. Under Jewish law and tradition, betrothal or engagement was considered preparation for marriage, but it was also legally binding. One of the things we get wrong in Western culture is we get engaged, and the second we get engaged, the only thing we get ready for is a wedding. We don't prepare for marriage. It's like we hurry up and get engaged so we can hurry up and set a wedding date so we can hurry up and have sex. And so all the preparation is made towards the wedding day and not the 50 years afterwards. And that's, that's part of our impatient, selfish, lustful society. We're trying to honor God, but make as many shortcuts as possible. And so under Jewish law and tradition, the engagement was a time of preparation for the lifetime together. So they were getting to know each other and families and traditions and culture. The wedding thing mom and dad typically took care of in our culture. And I'm not saying it's wrong whether mom and dad takes care of it or you take care of it. But there were things done differently so that they could get to know each other better. Especially if you don't have a mom and dad. Again, a lot of this presumes you're getting married at a younger age and mom and dad are having an active role. If you get married later in life, you may not have mom and dad. You know, and things are things, we're having to find the heart of God uh, because sin is causing things to be disrupted according to divine plan. My wife always says, when you disobey God, things just fall apart. Sin messes everything up. The man and his fiancée lived apart until the day of their wedding. Not even the church obeys that anymore. Folks moving in together, living together. The time apart was spent preparing to receive his wife into his home. Compare that today when the engagement period is spent only planning a wedding. And so that's why we also teach you should, through your courtship and engagement, you get to know each other in group settings. You get to know each other in church settings. You get to know each other around your families. See how your uh, potential spouse honors their mom and dad because that's how they'll honor you. See how mom and dad treat them because you're not just marrying a wife or a husband. You're marrying in-laws and uncles. 
most, I'll say, uh, a lot of children who are molested are molested by extended family. And so you have to think longer than just your sex drive on the honeymoon and her nice curves today. You have to think longer term. Most folks, I would say a bulk of the children that are molested by family are, are molested by extended family, and you're marrying into that. And you've got to be able to be around the potential uncle or the potential aunt or the potential grandfather because they may be pervs, and that may be a serious conversation you have to have. Listen, I love you and I want to marry you, but your family's pervs, and we're never going to be around them. And then you've got to be able to judge mom or you know, wife or daddy, husband, to see are, are they still tied to mom and dad or are they willing to obey the scriptures that says, uh, depart, leave mother and father and cleave to your wife. Because I don't have a covenant with my mom and dad. I don't have a covenant with my brother or my sister. I don't have a covenant with my nieces. I have a covenant with my wife and an obligation to my girls and everything else is disposable. My children grow up and they disobey God. They're disposable too. I will cut them off in a heartbeat because I go to hell for no one though I love them dearly. So we, th- this is what we have to talk about. See, all we think about is having the biggest wedding ever, biggest engagement ring ever, prettiest dress ever, so we have the best sex ever. And that all passes very quick, and you won't even remember who was in your wedding. You won't even remember who was there. And you'll totally forget, unless you have pictures that you look at once a week like a weirdo, what everybody was wearing in your maid of honor court and your groom's guys. Because it just passes and you don't care. Because that's not reality. That's a moment in time that begins the rest of what God has for you. Engagement, accountability, and honor for the man. When the time finally comes for proposing and asking her hand in marriage, as a general rule of thumb, the only person who should be somewhat surprised is your fiancé. General rule of thumb, when it comes time to propose, the only one who should be somewhat surprised is her. And the reason for that is because if you're accountable and submitted, those over you in the Lord will already know because you've talked to them about it. You've been submitting it to mom and dad. Dad, I think I'm going to propose. I think this is the week. I think, I think I'm going to do it as soon as I get that ring in. Pastor, I think about it. Elder, uh, mentor, discipler, best friend, I, I think this is it. I think, I think this is it. If you're honorable to her family, you will have received their blessing, assuming they're alive and they're worthy of asking. I mean, we're talking if they're two crack addicts in an alley somewhere, there's not much you can do with that. You will have received their blessing and they're going to know. Uh, Mr. Wolf, I want you to know I'm, um, I'm going to propose to your daughter in three weeks. You said I could. I've been talking to you about that. So I want you to know I'm going to take her out on this nice whatever you guys do and I'm going to propose to her. All right, son, we're very excited for this. We're praying for you. And I have a double get barrel shotgun with your name on it. Should you ever do something that warrants it? I'm going to give you both barrels at the same time. And I'll see you in heaven. <laughs> and if you have been open and communicative with her, she knows it's coming. Just not when. That's the fun part. Unless you're horrible like me. My wife totally knew I was doing it. She just... she. She said there was a change in my behavior. I would hope so. I was so excited and nervous and stoked at the same time. She said, I knew it's coming. You keep horrible secrets. So that's right. That's why she knows everything I'm doing for our 10-year anniversary. We're going to see how good she is. This should be a time for everyone to rejoice. Anyone outside the, quote, loop of who you've been talking to, 
they should be able to say, yeah, I saw that coming. Praise God. If, if, if the loop, your Christian friends, your Christian family, if they couldn't see it coming, mm, you probably did something shallow. So you may want to fall back and make sure this is, this is not something you keep in private. Again, we're not for eloping. We're not for Vegas honeymoon weekends or, you know, take a honeymoon wherever you want to. Just don't gamble in Vegas. I'm sure there's something else to do, but it's not known for anything else. That and prostitution, I guess. But if you're doing this and it's the will of God, everybody's going to be excited. It will bear witness even with the grandma in the church who doesn't know you. Because she'll be able to see that's God. I can see God on that from here. But if you're having to sneak around and, and, and rush things, something's not right. You're jumping the gun. The dowry, bride price, and engagement rings. This is the thing that's going to challenge us even more if we haven't challenged you yet so far. The dowry, bride price, and engagement rings. The only thing you know anything about is engagement rings. Engagement rings aren't in the Bible, but dowry and bride prices are. So let's look at this. Every culture around the world has some form of dowry, bride price, or engagement gift meant to signify the value of the woman whose hand is being sought in marriage. Every culture except the modern Western culture. In the West, the engagement ring has slowly taken its place as a sort of dowry or bride price. Because we're not trading land when we get married. We're not paying 20 head of cattle for a woman, which is a sign of wealth. We have the engagement ring. And I'm a stickler for the engagement ring. Hollywood always has the, the rapid love affairs where that we don't have anything. And so he goes and finds a wing nut somewhere. He crafts, he takes a piece of pipe and saws it off. And <gasps> yeah, that's because you were hasty and weren't willing to slow down and willing to pay the price that she was really worth. So you jumped the gun to fit the honorable marriage pattern and you paid nothing for her. You sacrificed nothing for her. You demonstrated to no one how wealthy, how valuable she was to you. So you gave her a piece of sawed off pipe or a wing nut or whatever. You, we, you've seen the movie or a little string. Honey, you should feel cheap. You should feel cheap. Now, again, I'm not talking to any of you because uh, we're recording this for posterity. Most of you are married anyway. Those of you that aren't married, you know, don't settle for less. It signifies the value of the woman whose hand is brought or being sought in, in marriage. In the West, the engagement ring is slowly taking this place. Let's see if I wrote this. Let's see. Dowry is a gift given to the groom by the bride upon their marriage. So we actually in the West totally misuse the word dowry. The dowry is actually the wealth the wife brings to the marriage. And uh, under most cultures, it's something that raises her price that makes her more desirable for marriage. In medieval times, if she was wealthy, she would be given lands, and the families would want to marry her to increase their family's wealth and bring it in. We, we don't really do that. It's part of cultures around the world. It is what it is. Dower is the property settled upon for the bride upon marriage by the bride uh, that, that, uh, that the bride may be cared for in case of widowhood, typically given by the groom or his family. So the dower is something that she is given that should she die, that the husband dies, she's taking care of the rest of her life. Property, cattle, lands, etc. Bride price is probably what we need to discuss more accurately. And don't think about slavery because this is not what this has to do with. Though slavery is a ditch this can get into. 
This is the price paid by the groom to the bride's family for her hand in marriage. In some cultures, the bride's price can take the man months and even years to acquire. And what this does is shows you how much you want her. And it, it, you testify that, yes, she is worth that much to me. Not a piece of string, not a wing nut, not a fruit loop. Not a you know, quarter in the candy machine and a ring pops out. Those are all cheap romantic TV gags. They're not biblical. But if he wants her, he'll be willing to pay the price. Compare that to today's meet and marry culture. Now again, we're not talking about the the dissolution of marriage or the cheapening of marriage through the gay agenda. We're talking about the church doing this. Want to hurry up and marry because true love waits and I can't wait. Let's get married. In some cultures, and I was talking with an African, uh, one of my pastor friends Friday about some of this. What happens in some cultures is a man shows his interest in a woman. He gets his uncle involved and they begin to negotiate. And the family says, this is our daughter and this is what she's worth to us. We've raised her. We've invested her. She has these skills. She's beautiful. She's sweet. She's not rebellious. She's a virgin. This is what she's worth to our family. And they'll raise the price to make sure the man really wants her and will really demonstrate he can take care of her. And all of this, when it's properly done, instills a value and a confidence in her. And again, today we have meet and marry. Meet and marry. J-O-P, justice of the peace, meet and marry. And nobody is testifying to the wealth or the value of that girl. And so they settle on a price, and that may take that young man several months to raise. My friend in Africa, he, he fell in love with a girl from Swaziland, and he negotiated the dowry. It was uh, 10 cows. He said, it took me five months to raise that money. Five months' salary. Five months' salary. See, the average American makes about 30000 a year. That's the average single income, so... That's about, what, you know, $14,000, and But see, you've got to live at the same time, so how long is it really taking you to accrue that price? This also assumes that the father and the mother still love their daughter and are actually raising her and helping train her to be part of another family. So bride prices, often mislabeled as dowries, accomplish many things. Number one, they demonstrate the value of the bride. I think if, if we had something more similar, women would have a much higher estimation of themselves because from the time they were little, mom and dad would say, you're valuable and you're worth it and you're not selling for some ding-dong coming off the football team. You're worth a lot, sweetie, and we're going to demonstrate it to you. And what a confidence that would put in our, our ladies. Number two, when paid, they reveal the groom's desire, love, and determination to get that girl. Oh, yeah. If it takes me six months, I will do it. Number three, they test the groom's patience. Here's one of the things I'm fighting with our young people over. You make me want to slap you silly. Your lack of attention span and patience. Man, you're a bunch of horn dogs, and you can't wait to get married. And so you jump through the legalistic hurdles so you can hurry up and get in bed. And you don't have the maturity or the patience that marriage demands. And anytime I put my brakes on, everybody around the situation starts squawking at me and I reveal hearts. Bunch of pseudo-Christians in that, in that arena. Makes me hot. It tests the, bri- the groom's patience because he must work to save up the bride price. This allows for a season of maturing for both parties. 
And number four, they demonstrate to the bride's family that the groom has the ability to get a job. He has the ability and drive to work and provide for their daughter. You can come up with that money for the bride price. You have every ability to continue to provide for her the rest of your life. And you've demonstrated that she's worth it to you. So bride prices of the Bible, we couldn't teach this unless there was an actual biblical precedent for it. There's a lot of bride prices in the Bible. Bride prices are biblical and help provide an interesting insight into courtship and engagement. Rachel's bride price says, And Jacob loved Rachel and said unto Laban, I will serve thee seven years for Rachel thy younger daughter. And, I, and Jacob served seven years for Rachel. What's the bride price? Seven years slave labor. He negotiated his own dowry or his own bride price. And they seemed unto him but a few days for the love he had to her. He worked seven years to get to marry her. So for seven years, he's around her. He's watching her. His heart is pining after her. He's getting this hunger. You know, at some point he gets like, hmm, it ain't worth it. I quit. But for seven years, he fell more and more in love with her, and then he got to marry her. Of course, we know the story. He got tricked, because if you go back and read the account in Genesis, he said, give me my bride, give me my wife. He doesn't name her, which gave Laban room to interject Leah, because she's the older. And so he married Leah instead. And I don't, I don't know how in the world you mess that up. You consummate the marriage, and you wake up in the morning, it says, and he realized it was Leah. How did you make that mistake? Light some candles or something. I mean, you, how did they get really drunk at that wedding? I don't know what they did. How do you, I mean, if you've dated, wanted a girl for seven years, I mean, you're going to know everything about her. And yet somehow, maybe he was reaping what he had sown towards his brother Esau, the trickster. Jacob negotiated Rachel's bride price seven years labor. As of 2017, the average American's personal income was $27,000, which means Rachel's bride price was almost 200000 don't you know she felt important all of her life that my husband worked seven years to buy me or to pay the, the price that my family established? You know she'd always have this confidence about her. The seven years also demonstrated Jacob's patience and commitment to Rachel. Laban tricked Jacob, gave him Leah instead, then doubled Rachel's bride price seven more years for a total of 378000 And he did it anyway. There's a bride price. Michael's bride price. And David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Deliver me my wife Michael. He was espoused to her or engaged, but technically the term would be wife, who, which I espoused to me for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. Ooh. So her, her bride price was the life of a hundred men. But it was meant to try to kill David. So really, David said, she's worth my life. I will die trying to win you in marriage. Don't you know Michael? That would have been a boost to her self-esteem and her value. David's first wife, Saul's daughter Michael, cost him 100 Philistine foreskins. Or we should say it cost 100 Philistines their foreskins. (laughs) The price was a setup meant to kill David. So perhaps it should be said, Michael was worth the value of David's life. And that is an expensive bride price. But again, we don't have this in the West. We meet and marry. We get the Elvis impersonator to do the the one-hour wedding chapel, wedding packages 
for $59.95 or the justice of the peace. What a shallow way to do marriage when these are the marriages in the Bible and they establish a protocol and a value system. The virgin's bride price, which is part of the Levitical law, the law implies that there was a bride price or dowry that was allotted to virgins. Though the actual amount is not stated in the book of uh, Exodus. Marrying a virgin was ideal and her dowry or bride price was therefore more. It's the same today, my African pastor friend said, if she's married with children, if she's a widow, her bride price will be lower. If she's a virgin and not married, her bride price will be higher. If you had sex with your fiancé before you married her, you still had to pay her virginal dowry or bride price. If the father discovered you had taken her virginity, he had the right to forbid the marriage, but you still had to pay the bride price because you took her virginity. There would be a lot of broke Christian men today sleeping with their fiancés. These numerous dowry and betrothal laws indicate how precious and valuable women are. And once again, the pagans want to say the Bible is very misogynistic and woman-hating. These scriptures tell us how valuable women are. Men don't pay. There's not a price on us to get married. We have to come up with the money. We have to come up with the bride price. We have to come up with the engagement ring that demonstrates to the woman, this is how valuable you are to me. And the mom and the dad help determine that value. This is our precious daughter. This is, this is honestly our favorite daughter. And she's worth a lot to us. And we want to prove you, boy to see if she's as worth as much to you as she is to us. The Holy Spirit as a type of engagement gift. This one we're going to trip you up on. The New Testament refers to the Holy Spirit as our down payment, our guarantee, and the first installment of our espousal to God. Though not specifically a dowry or bride price, the imagery is the same. 2 Corinthians 11.2 says, For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you or engaged you or betrothed you to one husband, talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So they're the virginal bride price. And Paul said, I have espoused you to him. So there had to be some kind of engagement gift or bride price. Now we know we've been purchased through the blood of Jesus Christ. We cost him his life, much like Michael's dowry gift was basically the price of David. So there's your first... Uh, purchase. You've been purchased to Jesus Christ. Now, the, the body of Christ is not the bride of Christ, but the whole collective body of believers, which is the heavenly Jerusalem, is the bride according to Revelation. It says, behold, I see the, the bride, the heavenly Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. That's a whole other teaching altogether people don't like. We've been espoused to him, and therefore there's an engagement gift. Look at Ernest. We're going to look at this word here. Arabon in the Greek, money which in purchases are given as a pledge or down payment that the full amount will subsequently be paid. It's a pledge of security. So 2 Corinthians one twenty two says, He has given us the down payment of the Spirit in our hearts. 2 Corinthians 5, five says, we, He has also given us the first installment, all the same word, the guarantee of, our, of the Spirit. Ephesians 1 says, You were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance, a guarantee of our purchase until the redemption. The Holy Spirit is the gift the Lord Jesus gave the church when he promised, I go to prepare a place that where I am there you may be also. I go, but I come again. It's the Lord's way of saying, you're mine and I'm coming back for you. The Holy Spirit, which Acts 2 calls the gift of the Holy Spirit, is a type of engagement ring or dowry or bride price that says, I've purchased you, you are mine, we're betrothed, we're a spouse. We're not yet one with the Lord, 
forever and ever. You understand that. But the Holy Spirit is evidence he's coming back for us, just like an engagement ring tells the whole world somebody's got his name on her, and he's paid a great price. All these bride prices determine that even though we don't do bride prices like some cultures do, you, you ought to be shelling out something. It should cost you something to stake your claim on that girl. It should be. We're not just doing some little finger ring, some little knot or, or some little wing nut or some little pipe piece. It ought to be a priceless, precious thing that she can look at with pride and say, man, that cost him. Man, that cost him something. He must want me bad. Engagement rings. Western culture has moved away from dowries and bride prices and has fully embraced the engagement ring, probably because we're not an agrarian society trading cattle. Different Western cultures do rings differently. In some cultures, both the man and the woman get a ring upon engagement. In other cultures, wedding bands are worn on the right hand or even on the middle finger. Regardless, the heart and the purpose of an engagement can be traced back to the Bible and should therefore be understood and at the very least acknowledged, if not heeded. An engagement ring is how the Western man's heart declares many things. Number one, it's how his heart declares love, devotion, and commitment. In our culture, this engagement ring signifies the biblical concept of betrothal. He's committed to her. The ring is a token of fidelity to the woman he loves, claiming her as his responsibility while he makes preparation to receive her and join their lives together. Now remember, the, the bride price was to prove to the Old, the Old Testament and other cultural in-laws or future in-laws you have the ability to care for my daughter. If you have the ability to raise t- the money for 10 cattle, you'll be able to always work to raise money to provide for my daughter. Because as far as I'm concerned, boy, nobody can take care of my daughter like I can. You better up your game, son. I'm going to come after you with that double-barrel shotgun. You know, an engagement ring, and again, that's not to say the bigger the ring, the better the man. Not, not, not at all. You could be like Kobe Bryant, have numerous affairs, and buy your wife a $9 million ring. means nothing. And that money means nothing to him anyway because he's worth so much more. But if you can stretch yourself, you demonstrate, I will go to the ends of the world and work my finger to the bone and sell possessions to make sure she's provided for. There, of course, there is the pride of engagement rings and, you know, how big it is and how fancy it is. That's not the heart of it. You miss the boat. The boat, the heart of it demonstrates I can make it work. I will work extra. I can save money. I'm disciplined. That engagement ring, that bride price, demonstrates so much about the character of the man. I have the ability to save money. I have the ability to work extra hours. I have the ability to sacrifice to make her mine. And once she's mine, I'll continue working the extra hours, making the sacrifice and providing for her. Amen. Number two, the ring demonstrates supreme exclusivity. The Western man uses the engagement ring as a token of exclusivity. The ring indicates that she is taken at the highest order, second only to marriage. To violate the engagement is a horrific offense. Even the Old Testament says that. Western women understand this betrothal and they display their rings with pride and honor, even using the ring to rebuff other men's advances. It's almost like the peacock. That ring comes up. She thinks a guy's hitting on her. That hand comes up. All of a sudden, she's left-handed. I was, years ago, I was talking to this, uh, I was at a sporting goods store, and I was talking to um, this young girl who was kind of taking care of me there, and I noticed she had this gorgeous ring, and of course, I'm a geologist, so I, I notice jewelry everywhere I go, talk to everybody about their jewelry, and um, so I asked her, I said, that is a gorgeous ring, I said, is that about three and a half carats? And she said, oh, I don't, I don't know, it's, it's not real. I said, oh, she said, I, I'm not even engaged. I said, then why are you wearing it? She said, so guys will leave me alone. 
And then I commented, and I noticed she had very, very blue eyes. And I said, well, ma'am, you have pretty eyes too. She said, they're not real either. They're contacts. I said, sweetie, is is there anything real about you? You're never going to get a guy like this. I think that's what she was going for. I don't know. Number three, worth. The engagement rings indicates a worth. A Western engagement ring has replaced the practice of dowries and bride prices, but truth be told, engagement rings are actually much cheaper than the dowries of other cultures. It is no coincidence that only precious gemstones are used in the traditional engagement ring because they're so valuable. Actually, if you, do the, if you do the engagement ring right, it'll go up in price. It, it goes up in value because the price of the gold goes up, the price of the stone goes up. The purpose of the engagement ring is to show the woman how much she's worth to you, that you're not a cheapskate, that you're not going to cut corners, you're not a tightwad, that when it comes to her, you will always take care of her. What you spend on the engagement ring is up to you. And De Beers, which is the diamond people, they'll tell you what you should spend. Of course they will. But again, my pastor friend in Africa spent five months' salary on those cows for his fiance. Five months. I'm not saying that's what you need to spend. I don't think I spent five months on my wife's. If I had to do it over again, I don't know if I'd spend five months. But it's a reflection of your desire for your wife, for that, for that woman. When you know the purpose and tradition and heart behind an engagement ring, uh, it'll greatly affect what you do decide to spend. And it should cost you something. The Holy Spirit costs the Lord Jesus Christ something. Uh, Michael, uh, those 104 skins of the Philistines cost David something. He risked a lot for that. Uh, Rachel cost Jacob 14 years slave labor. It cost him something. Courtship and engagement should be a season of honor and maturation. Don't lustfully or impatiently whiz-bang through this season of your life. I don't believe in five-year engagements. I think that's a little too long. But uh, don't whiz-bang through it either. It's the launch pad of your marriage. A miscalculation in this stage could set you up for years of hurt or possibly divorce. So don't settle. Take your time and prove all things. God wants the absolute best for you. So do your parents, but God even more so. So amen and amen. Our next lesson, we're going to conclude with what engagement looks like and some, some do's and don'ts and... I'll give my judgment on some things. We'll pull some things from the Word, but hopefully that challenges you. I know I've, I've picked on all of us. I've hit myself a little bit this morning. I didn't do everything perfectly right. I would, I would redo things, and I, just as soon as I write curriculum on parenting, I know 15 years from now, I'll change that and say, I wish I had known that, raising Lydia and Abigail and, uh, and our children. So the, the light gets brighter and brighter. We don't beat ourselves up because we did the best we knew with the light we had. Sometimes we just have to admit we were operating in a dim, lit room. And we did the best we can. You know, when the lights are fully on like in here, you can clean a lot better than when it's kind of a London fog kind of dim thing. And so you just have to admit sometimes I was just a little dimwit. But she said yes anyway. And I'm thankful because we're operating in more light now. Amen. Father, we thank you this morning for this challenging lesson on engagement, courtship, singlehood. May these truths carry on throughout and touch many people in the West through our pod school, through uh, passing around this CD or this file. Father, may people be blessed by this teaching and may it help our young folks and even older single folks not settle for what the West has to offer. But may we do things honorably and venerably as unto the Lord Jesus Christ. Bless these marriages and all these future marriages. Bless anyone engaged or courting. May they find the perfect will of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.